Listening to the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund podcast. In this bonus episode, we talk to author and Comic Book Legal Defense Fund Advisory Board co chair Neil Gaiman. Neil is one of the most popular authors working today. He's a groundbreaking graphic novelist with his Sandman series, among many other uh, titles, and he's deeply involved in several charity projects, including the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund. He's a previous winner of the Hugo, Nebula, Bram Stoker Awards, and also the Newberry and Carnegie Medals. Neil's been a tireless champion for free expression over the years, and he's one of the most passionate voices out there when it comes to fighting censorship. This podcast was created by the CBLDF as part of our ongoing education program. Uh, for more information, you can visit us at cbldf.org, and if you have any questions or comments, you can contact us at info at cbldf.org. This interview also appears in print in the CBLDF Defender, our quarterly news magazine. This magazine is going to be available through comic shops as a free giveaway. You can also get it through a subscription on our website, if you so desire, by going to tinyurl.com slash p-d-z-y-w-a-j. I'll repeat that. That's tinyurl.com slash Y-W-A-J, and that's a easy link for a subscription to The Defender, which includes all sorts of good content, including, uh, in this first issue, the following interview with Mr. Gaiman. Without too much more of an introduction, I'm going to pass it over to Charles Brownstein, our executive director, who sat down with Mr. Gaiman in Los Angeles a couple of weeks ago. Hello, Neil. Hello, Charles. Uh, free expression opened the public dialogue in 2015 with the fallout regarding the Sony interview controversy and then the Charlie Hebdo massacre. So let's start with your general thoughts on how those two stories uh, occurred and what you think they mean for free expression right now. Um, the thing that fascinates me most about Charlie Hebdo in particular um, which which completely um, baffled me, took me by surprise, and and was it's the first time I have ever seen not just the we're for free speech but brigade coming out, but the we're not for free speech mm -hmm. brigade coming out. The people who are like. You know, yes, these people were massacred, but they were writing offensive things. Mm -hmm. They were drawing cartoons that people were offended by. As if the correct response to being offended um, is to murder somebody. As if this actually is, there is a, this, and it's, I think it may even be an, an internet thing. Mm -hmm. the, the internet flattens things. It, it reduces everything to what you type. It reduces everything to small, pre-digested lumps of opinion. It doesn't allow for huge swatches of yes, but. Mm -hmm. you, but there was a definite sort of thing of, of um, at the point where you're going, no, these, these people have the right to offend. You have the right to say something offensive without being killed. And... Um, 
you know, for years working with the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund. My attitude was you have the right to say something offensive, to write something offensive, to draw an offensive cartoon. You have the right to upset people without going to prison, um, without being financially destroyed. All of these things, these are your right. That doesn't mean I have to like what you did. That mm-hmm. doesn't mean that I like your work. It means that I believe that in a healthy society, the remedy for finding um, what somebody does offensive, insulting, or just plain wrong is twofold. You reply to it or you ignore it. And those, I think, have to be the, in a healthy society, the way that you do things. You can, you can argue back. You can say, this comic that you've done with these people being murdered, I find it offensive. And this is why I find it offensive. I would like you not to do comics like this. This is why what you do upsets me and could upset other people. You are so in your right to do that. I encourage you to do that. If you find, you know, if you thought Charlie Hebdo was wrong, you could write them letters. Better still, you could start your own magazine in which you can parody everything, including the people who do Charlie Hebdo. I'm all for that. But what I'm not for is murder. What I'm not for is terror. What I'm not for is making people too scared to be controversial, too scared to have opinions, too scared of uttering of offending to speak because at that the moment that people are too scared to speak you no longer have a free society and I worry that we can find ourselves heading that way um, you know I am I am okay with you saying terrible things about me um, I may find them hurtful. I might find them offensive. I may be convinced they're not true. But I'm not going to stop you. Mm-hmm. What I am going to do is explain why they're hurtful, why they're offensive, why they're stupid. Um, or I'm going to ignore you. You know, Holocaust deniers, <laughs> people who want to say that, that my family did not die in those camps. Instead, they just had nice showers, good haircuts, and they just went missing. Um, Those people, I don't want to engage with them. I don't want to talk to them. I don't want to explain to them why they're wrong and list the camps, list the information, give them the numbers. You know, the Nazis kept fantastic documentation. It's not like this stuff is, is even arguable. So I will ignore them. I will find them hurtful, stupid, and offensive. But I'm not going to make a law to stop them saying that, and I'm not going to go and shoot them. As far as I'm concerned, repressing ideas serves to spread ideas. Um, But you're spreading ideas in a strangely unhealthy way. Because now, people who have ideas are keeping them to themselves. 
and they're they're being spread in undercover places and they're being spread and people are sidling over to each other and saying well of course what we really believe is but we would not say this aloud and I think that is dangerous one of the things um, to this point is that you've done a substantial amount of work as a free expression activist and travel to a lot of places in the world where free speech is restricted and so what have you seen in your travels that exemplifies what people take for granted about free expression that makes this I'm for free speech but sensibility so chilling? Um, China. I love China. I, I think China is one of the coolest places on the planet. It's huge, an amazing population of amazing people. Um, but I remember a point when I was out um, in uh, Xinjiang province with the Uyghur people and I wanted to have a conversation I wasn't there for politics I just really wanted to be able to get an idea of what was happening and what people were thinking the kind of conversation that a year before when I'd been there a year before in the same place it had been really easy to have and then uh, a massacre had happened, the Chinese had moved in, there were army troops everywhere, Things, had, the whole place had changed, the, the nature of what was going on had changed. Um, and I had a person there who I, I basically said, look, I really want to talk to you. You just have to tell me what it's like for you people. What are you thinking? What are you feeling? And uh, he made us drive out to the desert and then take our cell phones and then take the batteries out of the cell phones. Not just turn them off, but take the batteries out and disassemble them and leave them in the car and then walk a couple of hundred yards into the desert. And then in incredibly guarded speech terrified that I would quote him, terrified that he would get into trouble, he told me a little of how he thought and felt. That is a place where you're going, you know, free speech, free speech is a marvelous thing. Um, and the fact that anybody in America talk about what they think and feel um, is, is huge. You know, so that will be an example. Mm. Um, and that's not even talking about you know, things that you can and can't print. Mm. That's taking free speech down to the, the basic of, can you talk? Many people confuse editorial edicts with actual censorship, the actual government restriction on speech from an official body. And in your early professional years, you were a first-hand participant in a government censorship battle involving work you did for Tony Bennett at Knockabout with the um, uh, stories in the Old Testament. Could you please tell me about that incident and the impression it left on you as an author and as an activist? What was, yes, of course, what, what fascinated me, um, and that was my, um, I was 26 years old, it was the first comic pretty much I'd, I'd written professionally 
I wrote a big chunk of Outrageous Tales of the Old Testament, which had a great, you know, all-star lineup. Dave Gibbons wrote and drew a story. Um, and it came out, and we found ourselves uh, under attack. Headlines like, Coarse Truth Vicar, Would You Adam and Eve It? It's a Filthy Porno Bible. And uh, stuff. I found myself on the radio with, with members of parliament explaining why this sort of thing should be banned. And, and um, which reached its, its, its nadir uh, in Sweden some months later when the Swedish publisher of Outrageous Tales in the Old Testament. Uh, found himself under legal attack from from Sweden um, and in danger of being sent to prison. And it was an interesting case. I think they only let it go um, because he um, was actually able to demonstrate that the material was all from the Bible. And there was sort of a level on which, well, if you're actually going to send someone to prison for illustrating a Bible story and a violent Bible story, then you're going to have to think this thing through because there are paintings hanging in your galleries showing violence and, and horrible, horrific acts. There's a guy I saw, he was nailed to two pieces of wood through his hand and he was hanging from this thing there was blood running down his side it was nightmarish and apparently it's it's in the bible too <laughs> so there's stuff that they would have actually had to probably come down on if they were going to uh, really come down as hard on on the idea of these these images from this book um, but that was the kind of thing that I, w I was coming up against before I came out to England and uh, out to America. And also, of course, I got to work uh, to help fundraise, to help publicize what was going on um, with Knockabout, who were forever under attack, and learning the madness of some of the laws that they were fighting. Um, Knockabout used to import comics from America. They'd print their own, but they'd also import stuff. And their biggest enemies were customs, UK customs, who would decide pretty randomly that something was or wasn't offensive, and it wouldn't be let into the country. That was it. You know, you, you would have weird things going on, like a, a Robert Crumb documentary airing on BBC Two, honoring Robert Crumb, and they would bring in some crumb work from America to sell to tie in with this huge major retrospective of Crumb's work on the television and they wouldn't be allowed to bring it in. It would be, it would be confiscated by customs. But not only that, customs used to point to a law uh, made in the, the 19th century which was framed against the importation of noxious uh, vegetation which basically said that if you brought in a, um, a, some kind of poisonous or dangerous um, vegetable, 
that they could destroy anything else in the shipment because it might be contaminated, because seeds might have got on it, and so on and so forth. But somebody at the point where they passed the law had added or periodicals, magazines, or books to it, which meant that um, customs were actually able to um, destroy other comics brought in that were inoffensive on the, the because technically and legally they might have been polluted mm-hmm. by what they were brought in with. I, it was it was madness. And and that sequence of time. I think influenced the work you've done with Common Book Legal Defense Fund, where you've been a guiding figure for the majority of our existence as a fundraiser, a board member, and now as co-chair of our advisory board. Um, what do you regard as the key challenges that the fund has faced, and some of the key accomplishments of the organization in your time with the organization? There's almost too many to list, and the truth is, the biggest accomplishment for me that the CBLDF has actually been doing, has accomplished in the 23, 24 years I've been working with them is invisible. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's the invisible stuff that you don't see. The, 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 you know, the rest of the iceberg, these little legal cases and things that we fight, and I will talk happily about them. Paul Mavridis, uh, where the state of California decided to reclassify comics as sign painting, which meant they were not literature, and in order to make Paul a test case so that they could start taxing people like Charles Schultz. Um, technically, you are not, you do not, as an author, I do not have to charge a publisher sales tax when I give them a manuscript, or if you give them a drawing, because it, it is considered literature. But if you're a sign painter, you have to charge sales tax. So they decided that actually comics was sign painting. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and we fought it, and we won. And we saved money, saved a lot of creators a ridiculous amount of money. And more than that, and more important, we actually got the California tax authorities to understand that comics are literature and to go from the perspective that comics are literature. Uh, so that kind of stuff, there, you know, the big stuff. But the little stuff, it's the equivalent of, you know, I I will give you a personal one because it's always more fun when it's personal. Um, A police captain in Jacksonville, Florida, walking into a store, flipping, comic store, flipping through the stuff there, getting personally offended by the Death Talks About Life stuff in the back of Death, the High Cost of Living graphic novel, this little um, how not to get AIDS, you know, use a condom in which it is rolled down a banana and stuff, and a little explanation of, of not spreading diseases, and goes up to the guy who owns the store and says, I'm the chief of police, and if, uh, if you are still selling this, in a week, I will close down your store. And he called us, our, our then attorney, the wonderful Burton Joseph, um, wrote a nice letter explaining the concept of the First Amendment to the Jacksonville Police Department, and that was the last we heard of. And it's those things, 
It's the things that never become legal threats. That's a, in, in terms of the important stuff that the Legal Defense Fund does, it's the stuff day in, day out, like that, that you don't hear about. The, the stuff, um, and you know, I would hear about it when I was on the board, mm-hmm. um, because you would report to us, and right. your predecessor would report to us, and you'd say, this is what's been going on, and, and it was amazing, the amount of stuff that would just happen, and simply because the CBLDF existed and was in a position to say to somebody, uh, don't do that, it would go away. Um, and yes, sometimes it would get big, and sometimes some battles we won and some battles we lost. You know, Mike Diana, for me, was the one that was happening as I came mm-hmm. to live in America. He, he'd done a, a, a zine called Boiled Angel and suddenly found himself... Um, being the first American artist to be on trial for his own work. And Mike, Diana, nice kid drawing in this crude style um, stuff heavily influenced by EC Comics in the 1950s. And it was found obscene in Pensacola, Florida, you know, where the, the comic book Legal Defense Fund paid for lawyers. We paid for ex- expert witnesses to fly in. You know, they came out from New York. They came out from San Francisco. And the, you know, the comic cartoon art museum people came in and explained. And at that point, the the prosecutor got up and said, you know, we are not the crack alleys. Mm-hmm. of New York. We are not the homosexual vice dens of San Francisco. This is Pensacola, Florida, and we know what's obscene. Mm-hmm. And and they showed us what was obscene. What was obscene was fining him $1,000, uh, sentencing him to three years in jail, and then suspending it, telling him he had to have 1,000 hours of therapy at his own expense, um, not allowing him within... 10 feet of um, anybody under the age of 18, which, considering he worked in his dad's 7-Eleven, meant he kept having to go and hide in the back if any kids came in. And worst of all, what was really obscene is he was forbidden from creating art. Oh, he had to do community service as mm-hmm. well. It was a thousand hours of community service. Um, but he, had to, he was forbidden from creating art, and the Pensacola police were authorized to make 24-hour spot checks on his place where they could come in unannounced to make sure he wasn't drawing. To make sure, you know, they could burst in to make sure he didn't have time to rip up a drawing and flush it down the toilet. And, you know, if, if their aim was to show us what obscenity was, I'm going, no, that's obscene. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And your discussion about how so much of the fund's work is, is not seen remains true to this day. I'm still, you know dozens of times a year fielding calls from people that are saying the police just seized my computers and they're looking for obscene material or they're looking for child material because my roommate said I have it and I don't and they don't and we make those cases go away with our legal team. The other area though that's really been exploding in terms of First Amendment emergencies is the kids' right to read. And we're seeing, last year we were involved 
in over two dozen challenges in American libraries, American schools, where people are saying, we do not want Persepolis in our classrooms. We do not want, uh, I think it was Neverwhere in Alamogordo, New Mexico, in our schools. And this is a trend where we're really seeing that the stuff being attacked is the stuff kids are reading when they get home from school. And so as an author speaking to that age group, as a parent who has had kids through that age group, what are your thoughts on this censorship trend and how people can fight back? I am absolutely 100% for a parent's right to say, I do not want my child reading that. That one, Mm -hmm. you get. And you get that one completely. I am absolutely 100% against a parent's right to say, I do not want my child reading this, and I do not want any other child in this school to read this. And those two things are very different. And those two things are... What was interesting for me, most interesting in the Alamogordo, New Mexico case was the parent was lying. Mm -hmm. The parent lied to the press, and she lied to the the TV stations. She was saying that her daughter had to read this. It was, you know, she was forbidden to not read this, and so on and so forth. It was rubbish. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it it was a book that they could read that summer for credit. It was one of a number of books they could read for credit. There was no obligation to read that. And if you didn't want to read that, there were several others that you could read. It was not, you know, it was a fascinating thing. And suddenly all of the copies are being removed from the school and removed from the school library and taken and locked away until, um, you know, while, while the school made their judgment. And bless them, their judgment was the book was absolutely fine mm-hmm. and they were keeping it, which I thought was said a lot for the people in Alamogordo, New Mexico. Um, but also, if you're a school board, and if you're a school, you don't want that kind of hassle. You know, the problem with this is it, is, it, is the, the worst example of this that I've seen so far were the librarians. They weren't actually librarians. They were librarian assistants. Their job was shelving books. And they'd come in. They may even have been volunteers. Was this the? Is this the Alan Moore one? The, yeah. Yeah. Where leave extraordinary gentlemen the black dossier, and they were library clerks. Yeah, that they, was they, they were library. Yeah, clerks. they were circulation clerks. They were circulation clerks who basically their job was chasing up books and putting them back on shelves. And they decided that they did not want Alan Moore's the black dossier getting out into circulation in their library where it could hurt people because it would make them, you know, it would give them ideas. So they checked it out, or they took it out so that it was, it was not there. And I believe they did some kind of magic cleansing ritual to, to try and, you know, banish the evil spirits in League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. And then they just kept it off the shelves. They, they, mm-hmm. they kept it at home, and when asked, when challenged on this, when asked to bring it back, explained that they had a duty to keep things like this off the shelves. And, uh, and you know, the, the final upshot of it was the book went back on the shelf and they lost their jobs. And I have to say that, you know, your, your job as a library clerk is to put the stuff on the shelves. 
And it's not to decide what other people can't read. And the, the real worst part about that case, too, is that after they lost their jobs, they retaliated by going to the media, saying that uh, this library system is giving pornography to children, and so this is why we did this. And the library director was receiving literal death threats at his home phone number. And that was where we had to become involved in the case and you know, ultimately work to get it back on the shelf. But yeah, these things are happening with alarming frequency, and people are at risk of losing their jobs. People are, you know, at, at risk of, of um, you know, losing the intellectual freedom of their community. And so I guess we return to where we started, which is that, you know, the free speech is still very much endangered in the modern period. It's a... Free speech is not free. Free speech is something that we have to fight for. And that, you know, I have, over the last, um, what is it now, 23 years, 24 mm-hmm. years, working with the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund as a fundraiser and from my own money, leaving aside the time that I've donated, um, you know, well, well, well over half a million dollars. Probably, it's probably approaching a million bucks by mm-hmm. now. Um of money that I have fundraised or money that I have donated. And and I do it because free speech is not free. Mm-hmm. It actually, you know, doing the things that we do um, to keep people out of prison in some cases, to force huge corporations to back down in other cases, um, to simply allow you to read what you should be reading. Um, all of this stuff costs money. What I love right now is that, you know, 20 something years on, one of the great things the CBLDF is doing um, is the education program. Because for years, what we were doing was primarily keeping people out of prison and keeping things out there for you to read. But nobody else, nobody knew really what we did. Nobody under, understood the importance of it. And nobody understood the, the significance of comics, which mm-hmm. I always feel comics are huge because, and you know, Charlie Hebdo is a perfect case of comics being huge because comics, by their nature, become the canary in the free speech mind. Mm-hmm. A novel is a terrible thing to try and attack because it's big and it's filled with words and you have to read it. And you need to be able to comprehend or sort of comprehend what you're reading in order to read it. A film is an easier thing to attack, but even so, you have to watch the film normally. Mm-hmm. Not always. You know, you can, you can go out and protest against the life of Brian or whatever and, and without ever actually seeing it. Um, but you can... You can attack a film, but a film is something that you kind of have to see, and very often, if once you've seen the film, you go, oh, well, okay, I see what they were doing here, I understand their point. Um, comics are fantastic for taking out of context, for grabbing a panel, you know, newspapers, TV, it's something they love doing. You know, find one panel, find the most, find the most extreme panel you can, and then imply 
that all of the rest of them that you're not showing are worse. Mm-hmm. Um, and cartoons, you know, there was there was that fascinating phenomenon um, a few years ago with the Danish magazine that published the the Muhammad yeah Jilan's Postum um, where they then started realizing that the images that were going around the Muslim world purporting to be these cartoons in order to get people upset weren't even these cartoons. They were things that had actually been created mm-hmm. by a Muslim group to get people upset. You know, Muhammad with the face of a pig and things. They did that. Mm-hmm. You know, going, dude, you know, if you think this is a bad thing, just think how much... We're not meant to do bad things for a good cause. This is this is wrong. Um, but it's so... And the point is that imagery can incense. Um, imagery is really easy to pull out of context. Imagery can be offensive. Lord knows, it's one of the powers mm-hmm. of the picture. Mm-hmm. is that it can act on you viscerally. It can get right in there. And you can go, oh, I don't want to see that. And the trouble with, oh, I don't want to see that, is that translates almost immediately into, and nobody should see that. Mm-hmm. And why would anybody ever want to see that? Um, you know, the, 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 the awful thing about censorship, the awful thing, is that most people who are doing it think they are doing the right thing. They don't get up in the morning and go, ha-ha, I'm a bad person. I'm going to deprive children of their comics. Mm-hmm. I'm going to close down EC Comics, whatever. They get up in the morning and go, at least I am doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. You know, that awful stuff, I will help make it go away. And, um, you know, it helps in some ways that I came of age in the years that I did when the undergrounds had just happened. And the undergrounds were, in their own way, a reaction to, you know, the, the most pivotal thing that happened in American comics still, which was the senatorial investigations that followed on from Frederick Bertham's Seduction of the Innocent, a book which we now have discovered, much to absolutely nobody's fucking surprise at all, he lied and made up mm-hmm. and exaggerated all of these case histories. You know, we've now got his notes. And you're going, ah, oh, that kid didn't say that. You made that kid say that because it sounded cooler. This kid didn't exist. This kid said something a bit like that, but much, much more innocent. That <laughs> what you put in the book was different. This kid here didn't exist. You know, I mean, it's, it's a fascinating thing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he was out there proving directly the connection mm-hmm. between um, crime and comics and in crime comics which he defined as any comics as any with comic. crime yeah that's right because which took out everything except well I was about to say Uncle Scrooge but of course they were the Beagle Boys <laughs> well, I think they've been in prison for something I think that's right uh, the final topic I'd like to talk about is the transformational effect that the Game and Foundation has had on the Legal Defense Fund Our listeners uh, may be aware that the podcast that you're listening to, the magazine that you're reading, all stem from the support of the Gaiman Foundation in enabling the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund to expand our education program, 
with publications like these, our Raising a Reader, How Comics Can Help Your Kids Love to Read resource, and the dozens and dozens of lectures we do every year about things like the Senate history. And it's one that we're extraordinarily grateful for and that we're having, you know, just a really great series of exchanges with thousands and thousands of people about this important work. So on behalf of the fund, thank you. But for our donors, I'd like to get into why this aspect of our program is so important to you that you're directly supporting our ability to do it. When I was a director, when I became a director, when I, I was asked to come to the board of the Legal Defense Fund, on which I spent 12 years, um, there were several objectives of the CBLDF that were spelled out in its, in its, in its papers, mm -hmm. in, it, in its, you know. Do you want to say what they were? Our Articles like, of Incorporation? Yes. The, your article, yes. Yeah. And what, the, what are the objectives of the CBLDF, to fight arbitrary government censorship pretending to the freedoms of speech and press through direct legal representation, legal action, and education. Exactly. And it always seemed to me that we got the first two great. Mm -hmm. We did our direct legal action, and we did our legal representation. It was fantastic. What we never quite got to, because... And when you've got a guy who may be going to prison and you're rounding up expert witnesses to explain why selling a comic intended for people over 18 to a undercover policeman who was over 18 is not something that anybody should go to prison for, um, it, it tends to come last in the list of priorities. It's not where your fundraising goes. Your fundraising goes towards keeping people out of prison. It goes mm -hmm. to paying lawyers. It goes to... Um, so the education remit always seemed to me in many ways to be the bedrock because that was the bit that changes things. That's the bit that takes us to the point where we don't need to keep people out of prison because if people actually understand that comics are literature, if people understand that free speech applies to comics, if people understand what the history of, uh, of censorship in comics is, of why they should be proud of uncensored comics, of why they should be willing to fight for the freedom of speech, even for stuff that makes them uncomfortable. Even, you know, as I said in an online essay once, you know, freedom of icky speech. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm for freedom of icky speech. Um, I don't have to read it. I don't have to like it but I'm absolutely for your right to make it. And it seemed to me that if people could understand that, then we would be... We could move to a world in which we don't have to stop a comic store clerk from being sent to prison, a comics artist being sent to prison, a reader of comics from <laughs> being sent to prison. Um, because people would actually understand that what they were reading was art and was covered by the First Amendment. And it just seemed to me that that was so much 
the basic, and it was the bit that we never got to. And we never got to it because there was nothing actually forcing us to, and there were always crises, and there were always things that had to happen. There were always things that were more important. So at the point where I founded the Gaiman Foundation, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd by that point been off the Legal Defense Fund board for a couple of years, and I was on the advisory board and an advisor, and I thought, you know, let me, let me see what I can do to actually make this stuff happen. I'm in the, the fortunate position of being a New York Times best-selling author, I sell movies, I, you know, I, I set up the, the Gaiman Foundation as the do-gooding um, charitable end of me. And making the Legal Defense Fund education project less of a dream and less of something that we would get to when we had time, but it was always at the bottom of mm -hmm. the thing. And pushing it up was something that was hugely important for me. So that was why I did it. That's why the donations have been happening. That's why I will, will keep funding it. Well, thank you. We appreciate your time this afternoon, and we'll leave it there. Awesome. Thank you, Charles. Thank you. If you're a fan of Mr. Gaiman, you uh, can find all sorts of stuff signed by him, books and otherwise, at this web address. And it's a long one, so grab a pencil. cbldf.myshopify. That's one F. cbldf.myshopify.com slash collections slash Neil hyphen Gaiman. Sorry, that's a long one, but it uh, should be easy enough to, to type in there. cbldf.myshopify.com slash collections slash Neil dash Gaiman. We want to thank Neil for sitting down with us. This podcast and all of our education programs are made possible through donations from listeners like yourself and also by a donation from the Gaiman Foundation. Thank you very much, and as always... Like I said before, if you have any questions or comments, please send us a note at info at cbldf.org. And please, please, please leave us a review on iTunes. That's a good way for other people to find out about the work that we're doing here on the CBLDF podcast and otherwise. Thanks for listening.